Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be inside on this snowy day. And this passage, especially that last bit that I read, the part that we often refer to as the Beatitudes, is one of those parts of Scripture that is so familiar that it's easy to kind of tune out when we hear it. It's easy for the impact of what Jesus is saying to kind of miss us because we've heard it so many times and because the meaning is pretty plain. But I think to enter into a passage like that, it helps to use our imaginations a little bit just to set the scene and to get ourselves in the story. So I want to invite you to just take a moment to close your eyes, and I'm going to kind of walk us into the place where this passage is happening. And I would invite you to bring your senses and just your body, your thoughts, your mind, your person into it. And kids, if any of you are listening either at home on Zoom or here and are not otherwise occupied, you are also welcome to just close your eyes and turn on your imaginations and we will get into this story together. I invite you to just take a deep breath to relax. And now to imagine a Palestinian hillside, a place that's covered with scrubby grasses, little bare patches of earth, where there are grazing sheep and poppies and thistles growing, where there are old olive trees with those long silvery leaves kind of rustling in the breeze, and their gnarled roots gripping into the side of the hill. And then imagine at the base of this hill a broad plain, a level place, a space that's wide open, stretches all the way to the shore of the lake. There's wild barley that grows here. We can hear sheep and shepherd's bells and the sound of waves lapping off in the distance. Now imagine we have come together to this place seeking Jesus hoping to see him here, hoping to hear from him here, even if we're not quite sure what we're seeking. And now imagine that Jesus is here with us. He is seated. He is ready to open his mouth and to teach us. And as we sit, waiting, feeling the sunshine on our faces, feeling the breeze on our cheeks, we hear the anticipation and the murmuring of the crowd. And then before Jesus opens his mouth, he looks up. He looks at you. He looks at each one of us. Well, if your eyes are closed, you can open them. And I really just wanted us to spend a moment imagining ourselves there imagining that we are in this story, because we actually are in this story. If we are seeking Jesus, if we want to hear from him, if we are waiting for him to talk to us or touch us, then we are a disciple like the disciples in the scripture, and we are on that level place waiting for his teaching. 
And the words that Jesus says here, we often think about as kind of this standalone thing. They're almost like a, a chart of ethics that you could hang on the wall, but that's not the way they show up in the story. The teaching is given in the context of this relationship between a teacher and his disciples. And so that's the part of this passage we're going to pay attention to today, that relationship between the teacher and the disciple, between Jesus and us. So verse 12 that I read just a minute ago sets the scene. Jesus goes up to the top of the hill. If you want to call to mind that same hillside, Jesus goes to the top of it, and he spends all night there in prayer. And Luke is using the geography to tell us something theological, to tell us something about God. He's drawing on this ancient Jewish memory of mountaintops as the places where people encounter God. Those are the places Moses and Elijah went to meet with God. That's where God reveals himself. And so Jesus goes up a mountain over and over and over again in the scriptures to meet God, to pray. That's where he goes for his intimate communion with the Father. And it matters that this detail comes first because it shows us that everything else that Jesus says or does, every other action and word in this story flows out of Jesus's close and deep connection with his father on the mountain. Everything comes from there. And so from that deep connection, Jesus's first action is to call his disciples. Verse 13 says, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. He has them come to where he is. He brings them into that communion that he has just experienced with God. And just to put this in the context of the bigger story, just in the previous chapter of Luke, which didn't come up in our readings last week, Jesus has already called the disciples to come follow him. He's called them from fishing boats and from tax collection booths, and they've already started following him around. This group of people is going with him and seeing him heal people and bring outcasts back into society and forgive sins. They're also seeing him get into conflicts with the local religious leaders. They're seeing his message start to draw accusation, start to create division and bring rejection. And so the people that Jesus is calling in this story are people that have already begun to walk with him. They're people who are already disciples, and they're coming for more. Now, just a quick note on words. The word disciple just means student or learner, and we'll talk more about what that means in a minute. And then that word apostles, what he says he chose them to be, means sent out ones. It often means designated representatives. But Luke says that these apostles are also disciples, so these sent out ones are still learning. They're still students. And the number 12 here is also significant because all through scripture, 12 is the number of the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see here, fresh off the heels of these disciples who have seen Jesus in conflict with the religious leaders, 
And we've seen Jesus start to ruffle the feathers of the status quo, start to offer his kingdom to the people of God, and the people of God reject him. We see him here choosing a new kind of 12, 12 disciples, 12 apostles. And it's this symbolic move to say that the people of God is no longer going to be by tribe, by birth, by ethnicity, that God is bringing his kingdom to the people who want to listen and learn and hear it, that God is calling this new community of people where membership is rooted in learning and living the way of Jesus. So that number 12 is symbolic and important, but the rest of the stuff really is not. Luke doesn't give us any sense that these particular 12 are chosen for any particular reason. There's no particular gift or skill or qualification that they bring. There's nothing that makes them extra super special disciples worthy of being called apostles. In fact, one of them betrays Jesus. And some of these names are familiar to us. They cop come up again and again in scripture and in the early church, but a lot of them are people we don't ever hear about again. These are not like the all-stars or the A-list. And then there's also nothing in this text that says that these 12 are chosen because they have something in particular to do. He chooses them and he calls them, but he doesn't give them a task. And in fact, he won't give them a task for a few more chapters. And when he finally does, he gives the same task to 72 other people. So there's nothing about this group that we should think of as having something special to offer or in any way being sort of an elite crew of Jesus's. The only thing that this text lets us conclude about these 12 is that he chose them out of that place of close companionship with the Father. He's chosen them to be his up-close learners, his up-close disciples, and he chooses them after that night of prayer on the mountain. And that's how Jesus calls and chooses each of us, too. Not because we are particularly qualified, certainly not because we have a task that we bring to the table that he needs us to do for him. Jesus calls us into his companionship with the Father. He calls us, as Ephesians 1.4 says, he chooses us with the Father in love from before the foundation of the world. And Rowan Williams writes really beautifully on this aspect of discipleship, that this is what it means to be a disciple. He says that discipleship is about consistently choosing the company of Jesus, or rather, getting used to the fact of having been chosen for the company of Jesus. And we have been chosen for the company of Jesus. And then the rest of this text is unpacking what it looks like to keep that company. First, Jesus and these chosen companions walk down the hillside together, and they stand on what the text calls a level place, that broad plain that we imagined. And again, Luke is doing a little bit of geographical theology. 
Because the plains and the level places in Scripture are often places of judgment. They're places of the masses of people. And so when Jesus and his disciples go there together, he is descending by choice into the human condition. He's not staying on the mountain, and he's not keeping his disciples there either. They are walking together into everything that is painful and difficult about humanity. And when they go there, this crowd comes, as often happens when Jesus goes anywhere. They surround him. They want to hear his teaching. They want to receive his healing. People with all kinds of distresses and diseases, Jews and Gentiles, people from all over. And these are the people that Jesus consistently keeps company with. The excluded, the poor, the sick, the outsider. And so we see that being a disciple means keeping company with the people that Jesus keeps company with. Entering into the human condition, really seeing people, really listening, really being available and present, learning. The disciples go with Jesus here into the crowds, and that's what we are called to do today if we want to be in the company of Jesus. And then in verse 20, it says, He looked up at his disciples and said, This is where our little imaginative exercise at the beginning left off. The fact that Jesus is looking up suggests that after he has done all of these healings, all of these miracles, that he has sat down. And that's the posture that a teacher would take to signal, I'm ready to teach. It's time to listen. And the fact that Luke calls the disciples, or the hearers of this message, disciples, three times in this text, suggests the same thing, that this is Jesus in teaching mode, and that the people who are there are in student mode. We're seeing Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the master, and here are his disciples ready to learn. But in the ancient world, a disciple or a student was quite different from what it means to be a student today, certainly different from my distant seminary experience or my kids' public school experience. It was this constant, uninterrupted relationship with a teacher. So disciples would attach themselves to a teacher and they would hang on their every word, they would follow them everywhere, they would keep company with the same people, they would sit and eat at their table, they would breathe the same air. In fact, disciples would often sleep on the stoop of their master's house so that they would be ready first thing in the morning to follow again. Because there was always this sense of expectation built into discipleship. That at any point while you are just following and observing and mimicking your teacher, they might be ready to drop some fresh wisdom, something that just cracks open the truth and reveals reality to you. And so disciples glued themselves to their teachers because they didn't want to miss it. And so when we think about Jesus' disciples in Scripture, that is the model that we're talking about. And I think it's a helpful way of imagining and wondering about ourselves as Jesus' disciples, as people who have been chosen for the company of Jesus. And so here, on a level place, in his company, 
Jesus, our teacher, looks up at us, his disciples, and then he speaks those familiar words that we call the Beatitudes, those words of blessing and woe. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, woe to the full. Blessed are the weeping, woe to the laughing. Blessed are the excluded, woe to those who are praised and held in high regard. And blessings and woes are an old, old pattern in scripture. The book of Deuteronomy in particular is full of blessings and woes. So Jesus is tapping into something that is familiar, but he does something new. Because everywhere else in scripture, those blessings and woes are contingent on people's behavior, on them bringing something to the table. But there's no hint of that here. Jesus isn't teaching any sort of contingency. He's not saying, do these things to get a blessing, avoid these things to get a woe, or to avoid a woe. <laughs> the language he's using isn't prescribing something. It's actually just describing the way things are. He's describing this new reality, the reality of the kingdom that is being unveiled in their midst. He's showing them a new world, and then he's inviting them as disciples to live in that world, to live in that world where unexpected people are blessed and unexpected people are under woe. And this new world is a reversal of the old. It's a reversal of what they expect and what they know and the way they think things operate. And Luke's gospel just reverberates with these kinds of reversals. Back in chapter 1, at the very beginning, when the angel told Mary about Jesus, she broke into song about a God who is reversing everything, who's turning the whole order of the world on its head, a God who is going to bring down the powerful and lift up the lowly, who will fill the hungry but send the rich away empty. And then in chapter 4, as we read a few weeks ago, when Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah and says it's being fulfilled in him today, that was a prophecy of reversal, of good news to the poor and release to the captives and sight to the blind and freedom to the oppressed. And so here again, Jesus is unveiling this new world that reverses the order and the assumptions and the conventional wisdom of the old. And he himself is ushering in this new world right there in their hearing. They have just seen with their own eyes the hungry be filled and the poor be treated with dignity. He's seen people be healed. They've seen him overturning the whole idea of who is in the people of God, who this kingdom is for. And it's significant that Jesus unveils this reality to his disciples, to those who have chosen the company of Jesus, who have come to listen and to learn, to those who have been chosen for the company of Jesus. Well, as I said at the beginning, this story is our story too, because we have been chosen for the company of Jesus. And so here in this broad place, Jesus is looking at us. 
He is inviting each one of us to step more and more into his company, more and more into his companionship with the Father, and to live in that new reality that he has just described, that we can live inside of now, a place where even his woes are these gracious invitations to a deeper discipleship. So as we go into our time of silence, I'll pray for us, but I want to invite you just to enjoy for a moment being chosen for the company of Jesus and to let your imagination wonder what it would look like to live in this beatitude reality now. So let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, we thank you for being chosen for your company. We thank you that you love us, not for what we do for you, but because you are love. And I pray that we would experience you looking at us and beckoning us into your kingdom, that we would experience our discipleship as a broad and open place with you. Amen.